Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Second Features. I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host, Dr. Laura Main. Hello, Laura. Hello, Adrian. And how are things with you these days? Um, weirdly phrased question. <laughs> they are fine now that the academic term is done and the summer looms ahead. Uh, <laughs> Looking forward to it. Very nice. Yes. I wish I could say the same, but my academic term is still going. So. Uh, oh, God. Um, Do you ever get a break, Adrian? No. Like, oh, that's sad. <laughs> They're standing there cracking the whip over me uh, to te teach more, teach more. That's what they keep saying. <laughs> but anyway, it's all fine. Um, and so this episode, we're doing things slightly differently. So I'd like to welcome straight into the podcast, Dr. Adam Locks from the University of Chichester. And Adam is a returning guest. Hello, Adam. Hello, Adam. <laughs> Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Thank you very much for having me back again. Very brave of you. Yeah. <laughs> So you may remember about six months ago, Adam was on here talking about uh, weightlifters, bodybuilders, uh, Schwarzenegger, all those sweaty guys. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, that one was memorable, actually, I have to yeah. say. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how we follow that. <laughs> well, we're going to try today. So... This time, um, we thought we would take this opportunity um, to talk about Norman J. Warren and do a Norman J. Warren-themed episode. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that Norman, he passed away last year, but he would have been 80 this weekend. Um, so Norman J. Warren, British film director. Uh, some of you may be familiar with his name and some of his films. Adam and I are particularly familiar with Norman's work as we've spent more than the last decade, decade and a bit. Um, start that again. <coughs> Sorry. I can't even get the words out. I'm so embarrassed. Um, yeah, Adam and I took like, I don't know, 13 years, something like that, um, to write a book about Norman uh, with Norman's cooperation and blessing. And that book came out in uh, December, I think it was. So it seemed like a good excuse uh, to bring Adam back onto the podcast so that we could talk about Norman. Um, and also we thought we'd, I picked out the film Prey as the, the film for us to discuss, but we can perhaps just sort of talk about that film and around the film as well. So I guess my first question, Laura, is to you and what, what you thought of Prey. Um, well, uh, I thought it was a film. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought it had a typical three-act structure, <laughs> a primary <Wow>. antagonist. Yeah. <laughs> um, if I, uh, yeah, 
I mean, it kind of seemed, it reminded me a lot of like 70s softcore pornography, but like minus most of the sex scenes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and but there was also an alien. Uh, mm-hmm. Um. Uh, uh, <laughs> how, how kind do I have to be? <laughs> I was going to say, thank God, thank God, you didn't write the blurb on the back of the cover. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I, I thought the relationship between the two main characters was pretty interesting. So yeah. it's about as a lesbian couple who live in the middle of nowhere, uh, and this mm-hmm. alien comes to Earth to do some scoping to see if Earth would be a good planet to invade. Um, and yeah, the, the couple's relationship's pretty interesting. It's pretty dark. Um, mm. There's a lot of kind of cliches in it, like 70s, like lesbian character cliches. Yes. Um, like, you know, one of them is a vegetarian. Check. Um. <laughs> you know, they, they can't satisfy each other sexually. Check. <laughs> um, oh, there's a man and he's interesting. Uh, mm. Yeah. So they, they just, it, yeah, it kind of follows in that vein. But there, there is some really kind of interesting stuff in there. Um, and also, I really kind of enjoyed the makeup of the predator alien character, um, but I can't I can't say it was like I was awed by it, but no. I did enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, it, it looks the makeup, yeah, looks like it looks a bit like a dog, but it's it's like a kind of Halloween party. Uh, let's quickly stick some plasticine on my face, kind of. Kind of. Look, I think I did it? dress like that for Halloween once uh, when I was twelve. Um. Yeah, and you've picked up on a couple of interesting. There's quite a few things there to unpack. I guess the um, the relation to seventies softcore is interesting because the I think this film has a lot in common with the work of Jose Larraz and what he was doing in because he came he was a Spanish director, made horror and porn, came to Britain in the seventies. Um, and he made the film Vampires, which also actually starred Sally Faulkner. That's right. Which I think was just a couple of years before this one, which was about two female vampires who live in the countryside and prey on men, uh, basically. Um, very quite quite similar to sort of Jean Jean Roland as well. These films where it's basically just people wandering around. Yeah, like the Iron Rose is a good one. Yeah, yeah. People aimlessly wandering around, occasionally taking their clothes off. And then there's not there's not a lot of plot and somebody dies that that was quite common in european sort of art house horror cinema i think is that fair to say well michelangelo antonioni we spoke about him before as well he had lots of films didn't he, where people just wandered around aimlessly which really confused audiences at the time films like mm. the night and the eclipse and which again you know is, is quite interesting if you like films with wandering Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this film, as you say, does have a lot of wandering, but there are reasons for that, aren't there? But we can come to yeah. why they are walking around so much. I mean, yeah. like, aren't aren't those films the kind that critics tend to like, but audiences hate? You know, characters <laughs> yeah. wander around aimlessly and nothing happens. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we would call art house. But Norman wasn't making art house with this film. He was basically trying no. to pa- pad out a very thin script. Is what was going on. It, 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 if you if you stand back far enough and squint slightly, it's kind of art house adjacent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no? Yeah. No? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah, no, that's fair. It's There's also fair. there was a film in another Spanish horror film called The Corruption of Chris Miller from 72, 73, I think. Uh, which film. also also starred Barry Stokes, who's our main guy here. And there's a lot of plot similarities with that as well, how it's two women who live together, strange guy turns up stuff happens <laughs> um it's clearly something that was in the air 
Yeah, that's a very interesting film because I saw it for the first time a couple of weeks ago and I couldn't believe how similar it was. As you say again, you know, a man who's an unwelcome guest of two women who are in a relationship, who live in isolation. And it's it's very similar to Prey, isn't it? I wish I'd known that before we did the book. Yes, exactly. This is all stuff we can say for the second edition. Exactly. But also um, the, the main sort of source that is often attributed for Prey is the D.H. Lawrence story, The Fox, which was made into a film in the 60s as well. In fact, there's a bit, I don't know, this is the first time I've watched the film on Blu-ray, and the, in the first couple of scenes, um, Joe, is it her name, Joe? Sally Faulkner's character, Joe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She takes a book with her. She's reading a book and she takes it out. And because it's on Blu-ray, I was trying to read what the book was, and I was I convinced myself that she was reading The Fox <laughs> but I don't know if that's actually true. Um, but that would have been a nice touch because Norman always claimed that he didn't know the story, The Fox. Yeah. But then this wasn't his story. He didn't come up with this. No, no. So it could very well have had its origins in D.H. Lawrence, which I guess, which again gives it perhaps more kind of artistic merit than it deserves. I don't know. But there are some, again, some striking similarities, aren't there, in terms of story? Um, mm. So. You'd think someone behind this probably did was familiar with that. Should we talk a little bit about where why this film exists, which then <laughs> sort of explains why it is the way it is? Okay, um, so uh, like firstly, I just want to say that in this podcast, I am going to be playing <clears throat> the role of uh, a role similar to Doctor Who's companion. Like I'm here to ask questions <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that please. you can give some exposition. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I'm relying on you both because you're such experts on Warren um, to kind of, uh, I'll, I'll be like the, the, the listener. I'll be the, the person who, who wants to find out more about this and just wants to ask questions. Okay. Mm. Well, good. Ask, ask away. But I mean, I, the story is quite unique in how this film came to be, which, and it does sort of, explain why it's just three people in one location okay so tell us tell us more so yeah adam do you want to talk a little bit about how this why this film exists well yeah okay so norman well obviously this was a terrible time for the british film industry as we know american money Mm -hmm. had gone so basically there was there was very little work about um Norman was clearly looking for a new project, wasn't he? Because obviously something else had fallen through. And he got a call, phone call from Terry Marcel, wasn't it, Adrian? Terry, who'd recently been AD on the Pink Panther Strikes Again from 76. So that film had been made. And anyway, so Warren got this call from Terry and basically said to Norman, did he want to make this film? Um, But there was no script. And they needed to start shooting in three weeks' time. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, three weeks pre-production and there's no script. And, of course, Norman went, yes, of course, I'll do this. Yeah. I mean, Norman was incredibly brave when I look back at his career. I mean, he always did things under enormous amounts of stress. Because they also, um, was it a 10-day shoot, I think? And it was a 10-day like, yeah. shoot with three actors um, and it was shot, um, obviously, on the back lot of Shepparton, wasn't it? This particularly using this old house mm. on the back lot, and that home later famously the, became the home, didn't it, for the Who a little bit later yeah. as well. The um, crew so. were all the guys who'd worked on the, the Pink Panther film as well. Yeah, so I they're believe. very skilled, very skilled um, technicians. And they were, they were, they say they all basically worked pretty much for free, I think. 
it was yeah. a kind of deal that they did where they put the money in themselves. It was the technicians. Am I right? I can't remember the story. Was it the technicians were basically kind of putting the money in to make the move? They, they have raised the money themselves somehow to do it. Yeah, well, again, what's astonishing is that this film was made on something like three thousand pounds. I know. Uh, seriously, I mean, it was seriously, very yeah, cheap. Which is, yeah, it was very cheap. Um, so I, I think you're right. People were paid either very little or nothing. I mean, at least they were fed. Yeah. Um, but it was yes, it was a very low budget production, and we're talking about low budget. I and mean, what's so amazing though, Laura, Laura, Laura is the way it, it looks so good. Really? Yeah, so I mean, I was about to say, like, <clears throat> I'm revising my opinion now that I know what it cost. <laughs> <laughs> it's remarkable, really, for £3,000 that it looks yeah. so glossy in play. I mean, it's quite a beautiful film in places when they're walking around the countryside. Mm. Um, and anyway, but yeah, so that's the that's a little bit of the background. Yeah. Um, and then all the actors were from one agency, weren't they, which is quite interesting as well. They're all from this season. CCA agency, I think it was. Mm. Um, so, and obviously they just needed three people, didn't they? So obviously Sally. Um, so obviously we've got Sally Faulkner, um, Gloria Annan. That was her first film, and of course the wonderful Barry Stokes as well, who'd been Barry had been doing British sex comedies and stuff. That's what he was kind yeah. of known for. The ups and downs of a handyman. Yeah, which I haven't <laughs> seen. I, I, I listened to apparently. He sung the theme tune, didn't he? Which I listened to on YouTube the other day. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But it was it was work, you know. It was 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 all there was. There was just nothing happening. Exactly. And they they were they worked such a low budget that um, they were sleeping in that house as well. They weren't going home and coming back the next day. It was easier and cheaper to just sleep in the house. So. And in fact, Barry saved that house. He was sleeping there one night and there was smoke coming from one of the rooms downstairs. Someone had basically put a cigarette on the floor, which was still lit. And luckily for him, he went down, investigated, and obviously there was smoke everywhere, called the fire brigade. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had a set. <laughs> so it was all quite quite dramatic, really. And we should probably mention, obviously, the screenwriter as well. Obviously, um, Max Cuff, he was a journalist, wasn't he? This was his mm-hmm. first and only screenplay. Yeah. And he died quite young. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. But they were just writing it every day. I think they were writing bits and then shooting bits, which is why there's so much coverage. Yes. Yeah. Just walking that's around. Why there's so much? Yeah, that's why there's so much walking because there was no script. Yeah. What would they have done if it had been raining? <laughs> that would have been in real trouble. If the weather had been terrible. Um, they would have been stuffed. Well, some of the best films I've seen <clears throat> on the very low budget end of the spectrum are ones where there is no script. So you have to get more inventive with the camera and with the location because you don't really have a choice. Um, mm. So sometimes that can actually be a good thing, I think. So are you sort of, you said you were slightly reappraising this film now, Laura. Now you I mean, I mean not hugely. <laughs> 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 I'm quite impressed that they managed to do all that on on such a tiny, tiny budget. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, oh, sorry. sorry. I was just going to say, like, even the you know the spaceship is just some lights, <laughs> um, which Norman would repeat again, um, like a year later, two years later, when he did uh, Spaced Out, where he didn't have the money to create a spaceship, so he just uses some lights. You must show Laura that film. Yeah, I, I could have picked that one. That would have been even worse. Um, 
Although spaced out, Norman's sci-fi sex comedy has just turned up on Netflix, which is so bizarre to me. Really? It's, That's yeah, it's unusual, on, it's on isn't it? Netflix. Netflix now. doesn't show old stuff. I mean, never Net- mind like yeah. exploitation-y stuff. Yeah. Norman's sex comedy sci-fi thing is on Netflix, which is so weird. Wow. I did yeah. not know that. I mean, so it's interesting. He's, he's had three forays into science fiction, hasn't he? Um, but blending. Yeah. yeah but I, for me, I think Praise is most successful. Although I know Inseminoid was a much more successful film. But. Yeah, Inseminoid is a much more sort of straightforward sci-fi film, yeah. whereas this is more like a kind of chamber piece with occasional references to other planets. Um, yes. Yeah. But yeah, but like his spaceship is just some lights and then he's got a walkie-talkie. That's it. <laughs> and a- I can see why, but like I'm really sad that they decided to show him made up when he was turning into the monster and you know becoming the predator. Like I, I, I just I was wishing that they just show close ups of the red eyes and then cut away because I think that would have been more effective. <laughs> like the less you see, I think the more effective it is. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, Laura. Because the makeup—I mean, ironically—the makeup was done by a guy called Harry Frampton, who was an amazing makeup guy, wasn't he? I mean, his history of what it had been, i mean, he'd done makeup for Kind Hearts and Coronets and Man in the White Suit, Frenzy, Straw Dogs, Death Lines, and the Pink Panthers. He was amazing, but I don't think his makeup was particularly amazing for this film. But he didn't no. have long to do it, or much, or any money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like whatever he could find in the cupboard, he's just <laughs> stuck on his face. Some vista on his nose. Yeah. Weirdly, yeah. again, watching it on Blu-ray was interesting. Um, that long sequence in the pond, we could talk about that because that's oh, kind yeah. of a highlight of the film. I'm sure he's got the fake nose on in that. But then when he gets out of the water, he doesn't have it on. But he looks like he's wearing a different, his nose is different to the rest of his face. It's like he's got a false nose on, which was very weird. I don't know. I, don't know. I Have a look. We've got the Blu-ray. Have a look at that bit. I'm sure <laughs> he's got a fake nose. But, um, but anyway, so maybe we should, we'll get to the pond bit, I suppose, if we talk a little bit more about the character. Laura, you mentioned the, the relationship between the couple. Mm-hmm. You've got the very sort of dominant one who's clearly got a dark side to her. And has potentially been murdering people, which we sort of learn is probably true. How would you describe the other character in this couple, um, Jessica? Um, well, yeah, like I, like I said about um, character cliches, like mm. how do you know they're lesbians while they're vegetarian? Um, I mean, it, we can kind of laugh at this thing, these things now, but at the time it must have been horrifying if you were actually like... <laughs> watching these films going oh christ here we go again (laughs) anyway we have these um two i think it's kind of interesting because um you know the the character who is uh potentially you know a bit darker kind of a bit murdery um their relationship is quite is quite abusive actually it's quite kind of um you know there's a kind of psychological abuse undercurrent there where it's a monogamous relationship um where um who's the woman with the cropped hair What's her name again? Joe or Jessica? That's Joe. Yeah. Joe. Yeah. Joe is um is really uh like pr- wants to own Jessica, and it's a really sort of dark. You must be my everything. You can't talk to other people kind yeah. of relationship. And I just think 
uh, that would be if you the film kind of foregrounded that and it kind of does like that would be quite interesting to explore just the sense of trappedness that Jessica feels um so Jessica is presented as a more like naive character a younger character I don't know if she actually is um and she sort of she sort of um she's portrayed as being kind of more bisexual and she's interested in um you know when men come around she's like oh I'm you know I'm interested in dating other people and then Joe's like no you're actually not <laughs> you might think you are <laughs> but you're actually not um I was I was kind of also surprised uh pleasantly surprised I guess by I mean the first major sex scene they have there is a lot of elements of the male gaze in there but there are also some elements of realism as well, <laughs> which I thought was quite interesting. Like they do have a really sort of interesting, loving relationship, but it's also a very dark, toxic relationship. And then this yeah. guy comes in and gets kind of caught up in this. Um, so for me, I think that was the main sort of plot of the film. I don't think it was about an alien invading or about kind of, um, you know, carnivorous uh, predator. I think it was about these women <laughs> and their yeah. relationship. And, elements of it kind of reminded me a little bit weirdly of straw dogs um just because mm. of the rural sort of environment and these very sort of dark undercurrents between these characters um so i mean a lot of the time i was wishing that some bits had been foregrounded and other bits hadn't um but uh, but also also thinking like i can see the potential in this script if for example it wasn't written in a week and filmed in two weeks i can see the potential in this script if it was redrafted over a longer period of time and if the film had a budget because there is some kind of stuff in there that i think is worth exploring mm. that was my uh two cents adrian so there yeah, you go. yeah yeah that's good <laughs> thank you yeah the, the yeah there's definitely um the sort of the way that they're dressed as well to definitely make sure the audience understand who is in control in their relationship and joe has got short hair and wears men's clothes and jessica is quite naive and dresses like a little girl and puts her hair in bunches and all it's a bit it's quite it's kind of you know making it more obvious than it needs to be and then just to really underline the fact that jessica is trapped by joe they've got a parrot in a cage that we keep going back to and you know like oh okay so she's the she's in a cage too like you can sort of see what they were going for but it's it's not particularly subtle that was wally yeah. wasn't it wally the parrot who in real life really did escape oh, really, really? Oh, okay. he's the only one who got away <laughs> I lost Wally during production, apparently. Oh, that's why at the end it's just an empty cage. <laughs> oh wow. Um, that's a really good level of detail there. <laughs> yeah, I production don't, detail. Wow. I don't I don't rem I don't remember that bit being in the book. Is that I'll have to go in the second edition as well. Mm. I'm not sure we well, mentioned Wally escaping. Wally escaping, yeah. But what yeah. did you Laura, what did you think about Barry Stokes as the alien, as Anders? What did you think of him? I okay so honestly I cringed a little when he was falling home because it was still a particular <laughs> <laughs> it was like when you're a kid and you're play acting uh that you're you know being invaded like aliens are invading and you're like oh well they're coming now I I, I proclaim this planet to be invadable mm. <laughs> it was a bit like oh Christ um but um but uh no I I I thought he was all right um and I think I think he did a really good job um with you know what he had to work with um I thought the scene where they made him dress up in a dress was kind of creepy 
yeah. like the fact the look on his face that like what the hell is going on you know he's an alien coming to earth but also these women are really weird yeah. <laughs> i'm not really sure how to gauge this situation is this what humans are like or is it just what these two women are like yeah. <laughs> i thought that was yeah. kind of interesting yeah it was, uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, he, he's he, he's almost like he's just stoned for the entire film. He's such a sort of blank slate, just be going wherever he's told to go, and just he does. Well, I quite like to... that because obviously yeah. he's not he's not human, is he? He's, he's taken over someone else's identity. So yeah. there is a little bit of, although this is nowhere near in the same class as the film I'm about to mention, the man who fell to earth. You yes, know, when you've got Bowie's character Newton, who. Again, there's, there's, there are some comparisons there, I think. Really, or mm-hmm. the other one, Jeff Bridges in um, Starman, who again mm-hmm. is also quite maladroit in the beginning because he's again trying to adapt to you know the human body. But uh, but again, it's I'm, I'm not comparing. I'm not saying Barry Stokes is <laughs> as good as those. Well, um, and also that's a good point actually because Anders also seems to come from a planet without water. That's right. So he just walks on it and falls in the pond. Yeah, which is exactly that's why he nearly drowns. That's a good point. Yes, he doesn't yeah. know what water is. Yeah, yeah. That um, that slow motion water scene is is kind of a legend in terms of this movie because the the pond that they were in was pretty toxic. Yeah, it was the River Ash. I think it was called. It was stagnant water at the time. I think it's been cleaned up now, but apparently it was full of dead things so it absolutely stunk when it was discovered and that was the first day of shooting so they literally went in that water on the very first day then had to go to hospital for tetanus shots after that because the water it's it's black isn't it when you sing that stuff in their mouth and you see it in going in in, uh, glory's mouth oh it's so disgusting and apparently she nearly drowned because she couldn't swim yeah what oh they sank. They sank like a platform into the water for That's them right. to stand on, but because it was so muddy and sludgy down there, I guess it just kind of sank. Yeah. So the yeah. water was still too deep for her because she's quite a lot shorter than Barry. Yeah, I forgot how tall Barry is. I mean, he towers over these women. Isn't yeah, he? he's quite a big figure. Yeah. So, and of course, Terry Marcel didn't want Norman to cut it down either. He loved the length of the sequence, so that's why yeah. it goes on and on yeah. and on. Every yeah. single frame of slow mo is in that sequence. <laughs> That's right. Norman That's didn't right. want. Norman wanted to trim that down, but I mean, it's but it's good stuff, especially with the music. That sort yeah. of synthesizer score yes. just makes it all seem so strange. I mean, it sounds like a health and safety nightmare. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd want to be an actor. Well, Barry, Barry <laughs> told me. Yeah, Barry told me when I talked to him about that that it was him that suggested they should get tetanus shots. No one had thought of that. Oh, I didn't know that. But he was like, um, <laughs> I think we probably should. Yeah. Uh, it was good advice. Yeah. It was good advice. Norman always said that pond was disgusting because it had been on the film studio for years and technicians had been throwing their uh, old meat pies in there. Oh, yeah. it gets so much worse. Uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's such an amazing location, isn't it? Because it's seeped in sort of horror history. I mean, you look at things like that, that bridge, which is gone now as well, which was used in films like it sounds very geeky here, but the house that dripped blood. I mean, it's a very iconic bridge. So it's a fascinating location. It's the same house, isn't it? Isn't that the house that, from the house that dripped blood? I don't know. That I don't know. Oh. I'm not sure. Well, I know it's the same bridge. Oh, okay. That bridge is gone. But going back to the music, yeah, I mean, this, I think that's one of the strongest things about this film is the score, um, actually. And, of course, it was Ivor Slaney, Slaney. who then did yeah. the score for Terror after this. So he was a real find, I think, for Norman. Mm. 
and it was a quite a change because Norman is mainly associated with John Scott doing sort of jazzy yeah. stuff, and this was very different. But also, yeah. again, very cheap because it was one guy yeah. who yeah. was already in a st- in the studio at Shepperton, so it was all done in house. I mean, that's right. Ivor was there literally twiddling his thumbs. He had nothing to do. He didn't have any work either. No one was working, so he was available. But Norman was never very keen about a synth score, was he? But you're right, it was just to do with, because of budgetary constraints. Yeah. But I think it works in the film's favour. There are some lovely piano refrains in it. Though. I mean, there are some really mm. nice moments. Yeah, of, yeah. Of, you know, it's, I think it's got some very musical moments and very discordant moments, like as we said, in the late when they're drowning. So I think yeah. it's very effective as a score. It, this film is probably the closest Norman got to an art house film. Yeah. Um, but although his very first movie, Her Private Hell, I think if you were being generous, you could say there's a French New Wave influence there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I but, think you can say it because, but I mean, he. I mean, we, as we know from knowing Norman very well, I mean, we know he loved his Truffaut and all that. I mean, he he, he loved those films, so I yeah. think there probably was some influence. Yeah, he was a real cineast, wasn't he? Basically, big time thing. It yeah. wasn't, although he was mainly associated with horror, as a film fan, he just loved all movies. He did. And in his and later, I, later years, Chinese cinema, didn't he? He loved Chinese cinema. Yeah. I mean, I think he would have basically directed anything that he was offered. The fact yeah. that he was mainly just offered horror in the end yeah. um, didn't mean he wouldn't try anything. I mean, he, he did a spy comedy. He did Gunpowder, which is, I was thinking about Gunpowder the other day, and I didn't say this in the book. But I think it's his, probably his most ambitious film for the least amount of money. Yeah. Like most of his other films are just one or two locations, if you think about them. Terror does dart about London a bit, but you know, Prey is all one place. Satan's Slave is pretty much all one place. Yeah. Um, Inseminoid is all in those caves. Like his big, well-known films are all just one location. And then Gunpowder has got so many different locations and setups all over Macclesfield. And it's got stunts, it's got helicopters, it's got speedboat chases. He's doing so many things, and it was for a ridiculous amount of money, shot on 16 mil, because they didn't have the money for 35. So he was, like you said before, he was not afraid to take on a challenge, even if he sometimes would regret it when he was in the middle of it. Well, I think all these films are very difficult, weren't they? I mean, yeah, Gun, I think you're right with Gunpowder, although I, I, from what I've Again, talking to Norman, he did say Prey, I think, was probably one of the hardest films he worked on because yeah. obviously the 10-day shoot, the three weeks' notice, probably, yeah. you know, really tested him um, as, as, a, as a director. Um, but, yeah, he was – I think you just look back at him and you just can't help – whatever you think of the quality of the films, I mean, he there, there was much to admire with Norman, the way he worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we should talk about the book, uh, your book, um, but before we do, I kind of am interested in how you two um, – Sort of became involved in researching Norman J. Warren. So, uh, what what first kind of what first sort of drew you into that? How did you get to know uh, Norman? Because it sounds like you both spoken to him. You must have known him quite well. Um, so, uh, I don't know. Uh, why don't we start with uh, you, Adam? Um, so, I I must be in the because I'm older than both of you. But I I think it was probably in the late eighties. I watched in seminoid i wasn't very impressed with it at the time it's not as you know it's not my it's not my favorite norman film um and then a few years later anchor released this lovely coffin box set didn't they of his Mm -hmm. films and a friend of mine lent me it and this friend called steve had a brother who was friends with norman so anyway so i watched this box set and i really loved the loved the films i love satan slave i love terror i love prey 
And I was just chatting to my friend Steve and he said, oh, my brother's good friends with Norm. Would you like to meet him? And he knew I did interviews with directors and stuff like that. So he arranged for me to talk to Norman. I phoned him up and Norman invited me round to his house as he he did. Adrian did. He was very friendly, very avuncular figure. So I went round to um, Norman's and we just got on really well. And I started seeing quite regularly. And then he mentioned Adrian because I was talking to him. Um, Norman about possibly doing some sort of book on him or something like that and he said oh uh, he mentioned Adrian who was doing this MA Um, I said Adrian had similar interests so Adrian and I met and the rest is history really Um, okay we actually met at a screening of Prey we did oh well that's good it's kind of full circle isn't it I forgot (laughs) that I forgot that Adrian that was at the BFI in 2009 can you believe my god you were still at school (laughs) <laughs> but so at that point I'd written this uh, I just finished it in 2009 I did my master's thesis on Norman um, but like you said so there was this Anchor Bay box set but it had four films in it which were Norman's four horror movies well his four best known horror movies but I was interested to discover that Norman had actually made nine films so more than half of his movies were films that nobody ever really talked about and so naturally, that's what I got drawn towards. I'd already met Norman by that point at a film festival thing. And I ended up writing my master's on three of Norman's films, which were the sex movies, Her Private Hell, Loving Feeling, and uh, Spaced Out. Um, so I was looking at it from the sort of sexploitation um, and spectatorship and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, so then I met Adam because I'd also naively said to Norman, I bet I could turn this into a book. <laughs> uh, yeah, little did we know. <laughs> well, you did, though. You both did. Famous was... last words. And we did, 13 years later. You did, exactly. <laughs> so so I, so I, we got talking to Adam, and just basically over that decade, the, the shape of this book changed so many times because we were trying to please Norman, but also trying to do something that we felt we could actually do because neither of us are biographers um you know we're film academics and film historians but we're not we couldn't really just write a biography so uh it went through various different phases and different publishing possibilities and until ultimately i can't remember how long ago maybe four years ago we sort of settled on the final format which was the oral history approach which is what the book now is um because i loved it i think it's my fault i take the blame for making this book difficult because i love interviewing people and we'd obviously we spoke to norman loads but i wanted to find out what other people thought of working with norman as well so that's why the book ended up having about 40 different interviews in there or something. I wouldn't blame yourself because actually it's down to you that the book got published you know, well, eventually, yeah. to be to be fair to you. I mean, it, it just got very, very complicated. I mean, yeah. during the, the genesis of our book together, I mean, I wrote another couple of books which were much easier to write than this yeah, one, and they exactly. were purely academic, um, yeah. and they were much for outlets, and that was they were a piece of cake compared to Norman, because we had so much material, didn't we? Yeah. And the transcripts became absolutely overwhelming. Uh-huh. Um, I had something like, I don't know, over 100,000 words of, of transcripts and loads of recordings I hadn't even transcribed. And I thought, oh, my God, this is getting in. It's such yeah. a mess. And at various points over those years, you and I gave up at various points yeah. and then came back together again. Um, yeah. But we did have that eureka moment about the oral history, didn't we? Suddenly it started to slot into place about, 
how we should do this. Because also Norman, as well as making feature films, he had a full career in film and media. So between movies and even after he'd finished making movies, he was doing commercials, yeah. music videos. He worked for the BBC for a long time, um, doing educational programming. There are millions of people in China who learned English thanks to Norman. And what, <laughs> watching the watching the programs that he made. It's true. Wow. That yeah. <clears throat> wow, that is kind of fascinating. It was yeah. brilliant. He made this whole series in the eighties, um, and he hired he asked for and got Michael Ripper to be in them, purely because he was a fan of Hammer <laughs> and really loved Michael Ripper. So Michael Ripper is in all these like educational BBC things for, for to teach English so in China. <laughs> he was a massive contradictions, wasn't he? And again, the way yeah. he did you know adverts for children's toys and stuff like that. And yeah. yet he this is this you know you know horror director. He would basically just do whatever was going to give him an income. I mean, for yeah. several years he had a film rental agency and he did children's parties where he showed cartoons and. Laurel and Hardy shorts and stuff. So, um, so the trouble was with that, there was no end to the stories that Norman had, and we we couldn't possibly write a book that encompassed absolutely everything because it was, it was yeah. never gonna it was never gonna end. So that's when we settled on the format of doing just focusing on the nine feature films, but doing it as an oral history. So we've got all the different people that we spoke to mm. in the book along with all of our archive research as well. And we, I also, well, we wanted to really make it very colourful, like a coffee table book. So I was very keen on having hundreds of pictures as well. So it just became all these different elements and how are we going to get this all in, but also how are we keeping Norman happy at the time? Because he just wants a biography, really. So we're yeah. trying to do so many different things. Um, and ultimately it did work, but it, you know, it took us a long time to figure out how to make it work. It did, and it was quite a painful process cutting stuff out, wasn't it? Because we had to jettison a lot of words. Because I mean, yeah. the images—I mean, it's got some beautiful images. I don't know if you've seen the book, Laura, actually, but it is a—it's a lovely looking thing. I was hoping Adrian would send me a copy. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Um, yeah, that is a good point. I have got one because for I'm you. Cheap. I just... No, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, I'm ordering it through our university library, Adrian. Oh, well, that's good. Do that too. But, um, <laughs> No, actually, that's a very good point. I um, I didn't mean to send you one before we did this, but I've been so distracted I didn't do it. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's anyway. So there it but, is. Sorry, I was going to just say, but there was a lot which we couldn't put into it, wasn't there? Because yeah. you said... what are the sort of more interesting things that you cut out, um, or the things that you didn't really want to cut out? Like, what were what are some ones that you'd kind of wish you'd be able, been able to talk about some stories? Well, the interviews. Or... The, well, obviously, the interviews had to be cut down. I mean, for example, in each of our chapters, there's about five or six thousand words, isn't it? I think in terms of you know, the actual sort of interview yeah. content. Um, but originally, they were ten, twelve thousand. You know, some of them were much, much longer, really. Um, but I actually think cutting them down gave them a, a greater degree of clarity. Actually, actually, that yeah. worked quite well. But also, as Adrian said, a lot of in fact, the last year of Norma's life, I phoned him up every week and I just would record the conversations. Obviously, he knew I was recording them because he was just telling me new stories about all these different BBC projects he'd worked on. I ended up, I don't know, probably about 40 hours worth of discussions just about these other projects, which I knew nothing about. But Adrian and I spoke about this and they, they just didn't fit into the book, really. Mm. And really, they were so niche by the end. I don't know how many people would be interested in these other stories. I mean, they were great to hear, but yeah. it was getting ridiculously padded, wasn't it, really? And it was becoming very Byzantine as a, as a, 
as a book at that point, really. So yeah, and what I think um, as well, what helped, I guess, was trying to avoid duplication of stories. So because yeah. Norman's told these things so many times, but we and we had other people's points of view. So editing the book became quite interesting to make sure that we didn't have Norman telling a story and then someone else telling the same story and so on. But but what was in, sometimes there were contradictions which were good, which we kept in, where Norman remembers something one way, but then somebody else, like Glory, for example, Glory and N. Um, Norman talked about her being very comfortable, taking her clothes off. She was no trouble, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then Glory says the complete opposite. She was very upset about that and she felt betrayed by her agent. And Norman probably never knew that because she never talked to him about that. So Norman always told these stories from his perspective, but actually there are quite a few other voices to that have things to say about what happened in these films. I think that's so a really that, good point. That's a really yeah. good point. In the same way he'd play down the Argento influence for terror. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, whereas everyone else is saying no. David McGillivray, who wrote the screenplay for terror, he's like, nope, they wanted me to be Suspiria. <laughs> Yeah, they just want to be oh, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. So you've got these different points of view and these sort yeah. of witness stories and you're sort of, yeah, getting a full picture. Um, mm. That does sound massively difficult to edit, to be honest. It, it was it was tricky. Yeah. But to be fair to Norman, his memory was astonishing, wasn't it, really? Yeah. And the way he could retell these stories. I mean, yes, of course, some things did contradict with other people, but he was a wonderful storyteller, wasn't he, really? And uh, yeah. you know, I, I do miss him dearly. He was a wonderful, he was a wonderful man, actually. He was so lovely. And he was, I mean, it was very sad the last year. He deteriorated very, very quickly. But before that, you know, he was just, I just love listening to his stories. And he knew so many people, didn't he, Adrian, as well? I mean, his connections were incredible. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. Um, but we did manage, so what we did instead... Uh, of having all of that extra stuff as being other chapters, which would have just taken forever to write. Yeah. Um, because also we'd have had to go and do loads of archive research on all those projects as well. It would have just taken forever. Yeah. But um, we did keep a section in the book with a sort of very detailed, complete credit list that Norman had kept himself. So it's, it's got everything in it, not just what's on the IMDb, but every project that Norman ever worked on that he was uncredited on, uh, the commercials that he did. And so I went through that list very thoroughly and did as much research as I realistically could to actually give some detail and to double check the dates and all of that. So there's a very thorough listing of what Norman did, um, which people won't really find anywhere else, I like to think, except in the book. <laughs> but yeah, was, um, you say he was a very nice guy, and I was kind of disappointed that nobody contradicted that. Well, I was hoping at least one person that I interviewed would say, yeah, he was horrible to me, but nobody did. <laughs> no, he, he was, was right. Everyone oh, loved him. The only, well, no, no, well, everyone loved him, but but the only, <laughs> I interviewed um, Gary Newman a few years ago, actually. And, oh, yeah. Um, and this was before, actually, did I know Norman at the time? No, I didn't know Norman. So this is 2007. And he was talking about when he'd had that flying video made by, obviously it was by Norman. Yeah. And he was called, very, uh, what's it called? Warbirds. Uh, yeah, Warbirds, that's right. And he was very disparaging about that. He really oh. was quite rude about it. He's actually not very pleasant about it in his autobiography either, actually. He, he doesn't actually mention Norman by name, but he's very critical of that um, of that uh, video. And wow. That. Yeah. So that's one of the few negative that's, things I could find, really. Not that's that weird. 
Yeah, I know. I know. That was from Gary Newman. Uh, but I think he was going through a bad phase anyway at that time. Gary Newman's career was plummeting. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I suspect that he's more playing that down because he knows the fans weren't big fans of it either because yeah. Warbirds wasn't what they wanted. They wanted a new album or whatever. That's right. They wanted Telecom. And so, um, yeah, that's a shame. Well, anyway... Apart from Gary Newman, it's a big thumbs up. <laughs> That's the only one I can think of. No, is yeah, I, I think he was, I think he was loved by many people, wasn't he? I think he really mm. was. He was clearly a very, a very nice director, um, in in in, in lots of ways, really. Um, but one thing just to mention, we, we haven't. Um, I, I know this is just a bit of an offshoot here, but going back to pray for one second, there was quite a funny story, wasn't there, Adrian, about um, film seventy seven coming on set. Do you remember that? Oh yes, story? the Barry Norman. which shows there wasn't much going on in the film industry at the time no his was like the only film in production so they came down to do a location set report but they just got in the way because norman was was doing like 15 20 setups a day he was doing it so fast that they were just getting in the way and slowing them down so they just they they were kicked off at the end of the day and told not to come back that's brilliant, isn't it? Probably but I think least... that that is on one of is is an extra on the Blu-ray now. I think. Yeah, yeah. And what a fine box set that is. We should say, shouldn't we, as well? I yeah, Norman's had definitely had a like a resurgence of interest in the last few years. So obviously, the indicate there was the Anchor Bay box set. Then Indicator did their lovely uh, five film Blu-ray box set that's got a book in there, which I just have to plug because I wrote some of that. Um. <laughs> And so, yeah, they did the four main films again, plus Bloody New Year, which is quite nice because that was a fella, that was a pretty obscure Norman film as well. That was Norman's last ever movie. It is a horror film, yeah. but it was it was left out of the Anchor Bay box set. So most fans weren't really aware of it. Yeah. I You could only buy it on DVD from France. That's where I got my oh, copy right, from. Okay. Okay. But now that's being recognized as actually, you know, it's not that bad. Bloody New Year. It's mm. another one I was going to suggest for this, but I thought... Oh, I think it's fitting that it's Prey, because since you both yeah. met at the screening for it, exactly. like, I think it's nice. It's yeah. <laughs> very symmetrical. Yeah. Thank you. It's proper bromance there. I, did, I didn't realise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, these theatrical screenings do happen occasionally. I was at a film festival about, oh, I don't know, probably 12 years ago now, where they screened Satan's Slave on 35mm. Wow. And then this weekend... Um, this Friday, there is a screening of terror at the BFI with a Q&A with some of the people involved. And um, Adam and I are going to be there. The shop is going to sell the book. So, okay. Um, are we cool. signing? Are we doing signings? I don't know if we are or not. Well, I'm hoping that maybe someone <laughs> might ask us to. I don't know. I'll, I'll bring a pen just in case. Yeah, I'll bring one too. Who's um, who's that? Is it Dave? I presume David will be there. David McGillivray and Trisha Walsh, but there are other oh, guests. Fantastic. There are other people coming from the book. I've contacted loads of people, and a few of them can, are going to go. Can you tell us who's going to be there? Who else? Well, I I don't know. It's not official. Oh, okay. just several several people might be there. Right. Okay. But not as guests. They'll just be in the audience. So. Ooh, so well that that's kind of heightening the anticipation isn't it there you go i'm going to do my best to get this episode edited and out before friday in case anybody hears this and wants to go and tag the bfi as well yes yes when you put it out yeah so he's if he, he's gone from being i mean he's still in the, the grand scheme of things he's still very obscure but he's certainly less obscure now than he was i suppose can i ask a question 
I mean, yeah. how do you compare him to? Obviously, he's often compared with Pete Walker. I mean, how do you mm. see him in in relation to Pete Walker? And again, I don't know how familiar Laura is with Pete Walker. Is that? Um, yeah. A little. Yeah. Have you ever seen Frightmare? Uh, honestly, old, can't remember. The old, the old lady is a cannibal. Oh, I think so. <laughs> the House of Whipcord is the other one. Yeah, actually, yeah, some good two very good films actually. Yeah, I mean, I like um, Cool at Carol. I think that's really good. Oh I no, I have. One. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, um, yeah. Mixed, a sort of, mixed thoughts. Yeah, as, as a, <laughs> it's a really. I mean, obviously, I say really good uh, with you know massive qualifications, but. Yeah. It's a good it's a good example of just the sort of really depressing end of the sixties and beginning of the seventies, that film. Yeah, I see it as like an anti an anti new wave film where they go back to the north and like this London's a bit bollocks, isn't it? I'm just yeah. gonna stay here now. <laughs> it's a bit like uh, a bit like Smashing Time. They come to yeah, London. Yeah, it's like a parody of, yeah. of the whole swinging London thing. They come to it? London, it sucks, they go home. Yeah. Um but no, I'd, I'd say Pete Walker very different kind of filmmaker yeah. and he was basically i think they the reason they get lumped together is just because they were both making independent horror films in the 70s but and i don't even know if they were friends particularly did they no, get they, weren't. they were acquaintances they weren't friends because yeah. i met pete walker once and i and he was signing my book the, the pete walker book i mean not my book the book about pete walker and um he mentioned norman then which was I thought was slightly weird. He said, this will be worth more if you get Norman J. Warren to sign it. And I didn't quite understand what he meant, but there was like a dig or what, I don't know. Um, But yeah, no, I think they're very different filmmakers. It's just the sort of coincidental that they're both making independent horror. But you could equally say Gary Sherman, you could like throw him into that mix. In terms of of doing what they were doing, they were pushing boundaries at the same time, obviously. And there wasn't a whole lot going on in cinema anyway. No. So, no. yeah, I mean, the studios were, <laughs> there were, there were slim pickings filming in the studios each year. Like you look yeah. at Kenny Weekly and stuff and it's like, well, nothing much happening today. Yeah. <laughs> I, it wasn't good. And that's why it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I know Norman was also approached by people like Stanley Long, wasn't he? I mean, that would have been another very interesting <laughs> you know, string to yeah. his bow, or maybe not. Yeah. But Pete Walker was um, was pretty much self-financing his films. He was quite he was. independently wealthy. He was, yeah. Um, yeah. I think he had his own plane, a bit like Stanley Long. He had his own, he flew around the country and he just made the films because he could and because they made more and they made money. Whereas Norman was the total opposite. He had to scrabble to get the funding to make his films. That's very true. I mean, that's more normal for an independent director mm. or producer to scrabble around looking for yeah. money. Like, if you have a plane, then yeah, like yeah, that's right. <laughs> make, yeah. make kind of uh, more glossy, high-budget films, I guess, mm. <laughs> if you can. Yeah, and, But also, I mean, I suppose what I thought was quite interesting about Pete's films is that they definitely have much more of a sort of political subtext, don't they? Or maybe not a subtext, actually. They're quite overt. Mm. Whereas Norman's, I would say, really had any sort of political imperative really um, i think they were very different types of horror films and i just think i mean people i've spoken to that worked with uh pete walker he wasn't all that nice yes I, I wasn't going to say that but yes i'd heard that <laughs> um, well i think his films are perhaps um a little bit more cynical whereas norman 
just loves cinema and that ultimately I think sort of comes through in his films whereas Pete Walker you get the sense a bit more that he's in it for the money yeah again I've heard that too yeah I think that's probably (laughs) true Although, you know, the one thing about Norman's films, they are still pretty dark, though, aren't they? I mean, a lot of his horrors, they do end with the protagonists dying. They're not yes. happy endings. I wanted to ask, that's a good point, actually. Maybe we should we should come to the end of the podcast now, I think. But um, I wanted to ask you, Laura, would the, would the closing shot of Prey, I don't think it matters if we spoil it too much here. Um, so Anders has decided that humans are high in protein and a good food source and we should begin the invasion imminently and just as the camera sort of freeze frames on two children walking along terry marcel's children oh are they yeah oh i didn't realize that that's yes. funny yeah. like, what yeah what do you think about that as an ending i think that's as pretty much as bleak as it gets kato calling command ship send advance parties immediately have now established humans high in protein and easy prey. I think, yeah, uh, it was bleak. It is a bleak ending. It was slightly undercut by the sort of really awkward exposition scene where he says, well, the planet can be invaded yeah. because, like, <laughs> there is good eating here. So come on uh-huh. down, guys. Yeah. Um, I think I think if they'd like led up to it slightly differently, it would have been genuinely sinister. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. But maybe that's that's just kind of my personal uh, opinion. I was kind of I was caught between laughter and thinking it was creepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for a lot of the film, if I'm honest. <laughs> that's true. Asia, I I suppose, thinking, if, you, if you send Laura the book, just rip out the chapter on prey. Yeah, <laughs> I did gonna, find it. I did find it interesting. I'll go through it um, with a highlighter. <laughs> I mean, like it's it's uncomfortable in terms of the cliches it includes. Yeah, but to be fair, I've seen much worse on well, the low yeah, budget exploitation true. end of the spectrum when it comes to um, when it comes to looking back at this stuff from like, you know, post Me Too, post uh, mm. 2017. I, I, I've actually kind of been far more uncomfortable watching mm-hmm. uh, low budgets, particularly like sex films and um, sex exploitation films from the 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, I didn't get too much of that from Prey despite mm-hmm. the fact that it is called Prey. <laughs> it's about yeah. two women being preyed on by an alien, actually. <laughs> so, you know. To, um, <laughs> to really make sure that audiences got that in America, they called it Alien Prey. Yeah. Oh, did they? Just, Just remove really... all the subtext then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just have text. Yeah. Okay. But this is, again, I don't know how much of a spoiler this is, but pretty much I think all of Norman's films end with everybody dead at the end. That, yeah. the horrors yeah definitely the yeah, horrors definitely yeah that's the common yeah. linking there is that he just kills everyone off <laughs> but he said that's life isn't he? he said life is not a happy ending he said that to me he said we all die that's, yeah. that's life um so his films in some ways were quite yes existential in that respect i suppose yeah yeah well on that bombshell <laughs> yeah we're better. We'll, we'll we'll bring it to a close there. But we haven't even said the name of the book. Adam, do you want to tell everybody what the book is called and if they're desperate, where they can get one? Gentlemen of Terror. 
is is the title of the book, isn't it? By myself mm-hmm. and you. Um, and it's from, well, it's creepy, creepy, creepy images, isn't it? Do they, they need to go to the website there, don't they, to access? Well, them? I'll I'll put the link in the Could chat. You, yeah, yeah. You can also, if you're in the UK, you can get it from Fab Press. Oh, of course, yes, good point. So they are supplying in the UK. There's also a seller in America, and I must apologise that I've forgotten what they're called, but I'll also put that link in the chat as well. Brilliant. But it's available from a US reseller too but i mean it's not i feel slightly like we've cheated because this podcast has been primarily about academic books and publications that people have done and this is not a book by an academic publisher and it's but it is by academics and but it is by like the the amount of research and the uh, as an oral history just it's a kind of crossover i I have done an academic article on norman which was published Mm. elsewhere actually so but yeah we are we are academics i know this wasn't an academic book but still i'd I'd like to think it's a sort of crossover It's, it's it's got cult appeal with all the pictures as well it's a kind of coffee table book but it's got you know we've been fairly rigorous in our research and well, that's the dream, it. guys. Like, yeah, that's, so, what, that's what yeah. academics are meant to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, well done. <laughs> hooray for us. Um, cool. Well, anyway, there you go. So, um, thank you, Adam, for, for coming on. Thank you, Laura, for watching Prey and uh, getting. You're welcome. It. I mean, at least, it's, at least it's short, right? It's 85 minutes and done. So, if not, I have else. enjoyed chatting to you both. Um, That's been good, and lots of really interesting anecdotes as well. Yeah, well, you'll find lots more when I send you the book. Yes, I look forward to reading it. <laughs> Minus the chapter on pro. Yeah, it's fine. Um, we, yeah, I don't think we even really talked about the um, the cannibal scene, but we'll leave that now. That's just oh. something people can discover. On yeah, their which own. is probably the best scene, one of the best scenes in the film. Yeah, I mean, it's very this. The the film doesn't not a lot happens and then all of a sudden extreme gore, and uh, then it's the end. So <laughs> just to summarize it like that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's, very, it's, it's very gory actually. Yeah, it's a very bloody image that was used a lot in the publicity and on the video covers and stuff. So they kind of all the publicity gave it away. Yes, the, yeah. the, the sort of the money shot of the film was was just. Out there, was like, straight was it like pig or cow guts? I think Hayden Pierce, you know, had gone. Oh, he wasn't actually eating cow guts, was he? Oh, well, no. I think that was all, all. I think <laughs> that was all on her, on her, on her torso. But I think he was eating steak. So I hear. But yeah, I think it was you... steak because he would. Um, yeah, I think it was steak. There was one outtake where he had a string of sausages. That's right. Which sadly, no, that footage no longer exists. But it would have been quite funny. Thank, that, thank God that didn't make any of the covers. Yeah. <laughs> so they got food poisoning and they had to have tetanus shots. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and they um, and nearly nearly burned the house down. Nearly burned the house down. Got a lot of seventies. Yeah, classic. So um, thank you everybody for listening, and um, please do leave us a review and all the normal places um tell your friends share it online contact us as well if you want to uh come on and be a guest on the podcast laura how can they contact us um you can tweet us at second features uh and you can email uh second features pod at gmail.com pretty sure it is yay (laughs) should know by now or you can just tweet me or Adrian. So Adrian's retro ramblings, and I am Laura Jane May. Um, probably best, probably more active on Twitter among the social medias. Yes. yes. 
Yeah, so please do get involved. That would be good. Okay, well, thanks, Adam, for coming along. Anything you want to uh, plug or tell us about before we finish that you're doing? Um, no, I've got a couple of things in the pipeline I can't really say yet because I don't want to jinx myself. So, um, <laughs> But I am working on a couple of things, but it's just about motivating oneself after the last sure. two years isn't it i think we're all yeah. rather i think many academics are now absolutely exhausted uh so everyone feels like they need a bit of a break i just don't rub that in adrian but um okay <laughs> so thank you to adam locks thank you for coming on and uh thank you laura for watching pray and, that's okay you don't need to thank me adrian it um, was a joy a pleasure thank you everybody for listening we are second features and we'll be back again next month for more who knows what. I'm picking what? the film next time. Okay. That's, that's, <laughs> okay. That's, that's fair. Okay, bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.